We're continuing our study this morning in the book of Micah, and the theme this Advent season is taken out of Micah's prophecy about the coming Messiah, and he will be their peace. I think uh, it would be um, foolish this morning not to acknowledge the fact that the word peace seems uh, beyond our grasp in a moment like this. Uh, when I uh, was actually, Friday's my day off, and it was warm enough, I was playing golf with some friends, and I came off the golf course, and I began to hear the news of what had happened. I was quickly, but the same emotions that began to well up in me were the emotions when we had the shooting at City Hall a few years ago. And it was kind of like, not again, you know, please not, <laughs> not again. And then when I heard what actually had happened uh, and the, uh, the death of those wonderful little children, it was almost beyond uh, imagination. Is it really true that there is a hope for peace? It seems elusive at best. Um, emotions that I've experienced, and, and probably you have too, uh, in the last 48 hours, anxiousness, uh, just a grief, a sorrow. Anybody that has children, our grandchildren, uh, has to absolutely weep uh, for those who lost loved ones in that particular experience. Maybe even a, a bit of, of uh, shaking of our faith, uh, and, and maybe even a shattering of, of emotional stability in our lives. Anything, anything but peace. Uh, would, would kind of describe how I felt the last 48 hours. And, and again, my anxiety can't even begin to compare with those people who are directly affected. And, and in a moment like this, I think it's a fair question to ask, does the Bible really offer a legitimate hope? Does the Bible really offer any true answers for a moment like this? You know, Saturday Night Live, I don't, I don't know how many Saturday Night Live fans we have. I'm not a fan anymore because uh, I don't understand the humor. I'm old, I guess. But they had a children's choir singing Silent Night on Saturday Night Live last night. So even a, a group of people that are committed to mocking the Christian faith turn back to that truth at a moment like that. And, and it, it just makes me wonder if there really is an offer of hope or if people just need to do whatever they can to sedate their feelings to get by. I believe the prophet Micah speaks directly to the question of peace, speaks directly to the pathway of peace. And this morning we're going to consider the name of peace. Uh, as we look at God's Word this morning, we're going to consider uh, how Micah says this one who is going to come and make things right, how he will rule and how he will reign and how he will affect change. And one of the things you'll see as we read this passage of Scripture is that it is through the majestic name of God that this happens. And so we're going to look at the name of peace this morning, even in the context of uh, what happened on Friday in Connecticut. Let's Turn to the Word of God, Micah chapter 5, verse 1, through the first line of verse 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come one forth from me who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word this morning desiring to 
have answers in our hearts and our minds. Lord, we know we live in a world that is not perfect. Father, we don't have to look any further than the mirror to know that. Uh, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves for even the briefest of moments, we, we, we know that we make mistakes. We know that we even intentionally harm others from time to time. We know that, that we are not perfect people. And yet, Father, there are times when our imperfections and our rebellion against your lordship uh, take turns that, that are difficult to even begin to understand. So, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we don't want to go through an exercise that simply is uh, perfunctory, that simply, this is what we do on Sunday. Father, if your peace does not invade our hearts and our souls and our minds, as individuals and as a church, as a community, as a nation, and we are lost. We are lost to ourselves. We, the only hope we have is in mankind, and there is no hope in mankind. It is fruitless. Father, I don't want to be fatalistic, and I don't want to sound pessimistic this morning, but at the end of the day, man cannot solve man's problems. We have shown for thousands of years our complete incapabilities to do that. And yet your word speaks of peace. Your, work, your word speaks of hope. Your word speaks of a very real truth that can literally transform our lives and not just change our eternal destiny, but also impact the way in which we live with one another. And Father, that is, that is what is at least consuming my thoughts this morning. How do we live with one another? How do we care for one another? How do we, how do we go the opposite direction of harming one another? And it, and it doesn't come through our strength. And it doesn't come through our name. It can only come through yours. So it's good and it's appropriate and, it, and, it, and it's hopeful that we are here this morning. But Lord, we, we are wasting our time if we come to hear the words of man. So I, I pray once again that you would get me out of the way and that your truth would speak into our hearts and to our minds. Lord Jesus, that you would come and that you would teach us through your word and your spirit. Father, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of your people hearing your word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, clearly the prophet Micah, 700 years before the, the birth of Jesus, about which we sang this morning, speaks about the peace of God. But he speaks about peace in terms of man's peace with God or God's peace with man. He speaks about it on the, on the vertical, first and foremost. And I think it's important that we understand before we dive in this morning and we look at the name of peace, that we understand that before we can have peace with one another on any significant level, we must have peace with God. And so as Micah speaks about this one who is going to come as God's representative, being both God and man, he talks about this one is the ancient of days. This one is God in the flesh. He's also a child of Bethlehem. He, he, he's flesh and blood. He lived in a certain time uh, in the history of this world. He is not some mystical figure that just looked like a man. He actually was a human. He took on human flesh. And we see that this one is going to come and rule and reign over the people of God. We see that he's going to do that in the strength of God. We see that he's going to do that with some, uh, with some determination as he stands watch over the flock. As a shepherd who is, who is undistracted and completely focused on his responsibility to care for this flock in the strength of the Lord. But now we see in chapter 5 verse 4, the second half of the verse, that there is another attribute to, to which this one is directed that gives him the ability to shepherd. And it is in the majesty 
of the name of the Lord his God. It is the name of peace. How does this name bring peace? How does this name give us hope in the face of a fallen, broken world in which we live, our own lives and the lives of those around us? So what I'm going to do this morning is simply use the second half of verse 4 as a backdrop, the name of peace, to, to look at a few of the names that God has given in Scripture. Now, let me start off by saying there are dozens and dozens and dozens of names for God that in, when we read in our English Bible, we don't necessarily see the the, the way it translates, we typically see the word God or Lord. And so we're going to walk through some of these names, and you're going to learn a little nuance this morning, but we're not going to cover all of them. We're going to cover a small fraction of them. And now when I tell you the number, you're going to panic, okay? So you just go ahead and get ready to panic. We're going to cover nine names of God this morning and this afternoon. No, we're going to stay on time, and we're going to just touch on these. But my intention is that this would perhaps... Be used by God to spark an interest in your heart to look at some of the other names. Because when you begin to see the multi-layered names of God, you begin to see his characteristics. And you begin to see why there is hope. Why there is hope for an eternal relationship with him and why there is hope in this world alone. So as we, as we scoot through pretty quickly these nine names of God, I hope that it will help form within each of us an understanding of why this is the name of peace. The, the first and, and the most uh, basic name of God that we find in the Old Testament is, is the name Elohim or El. Actually, just those first two letters is the singular. And the idea behind this name, El or Elohim, means mighty and strong and prominent. The word El is used 250 times in the Old Testament. Elohim is used uh, another 2,500-something times in the Old Testament. When God put Noah in the ark and he said, I want your family to go in and, and close the door. I'm going to close the door behind you because I'm going to bring floodwaters onto the earth. He uses this name. I am the mighty one. I'm the one who is strong enough to do this. And so I'm going to protect you. When he says to Joshua, before they go into the promised land, they're getting ready to, do, ready to do battle, he says, I am going before you. I will be with you. And he's talking about the one who is strong and is mighty. In its plural, the, the majesty uh, intimates the understanding that we have in the New Testament of the Trinity, that Elohim is actually the, the triune God. The one who is mighty, the one who is strong. It, it's used to help us understand that God is sovereign over all of his creation, over all of his work, over all of his redemption. And so this, this most basic word, El or Elohim, uh, is used to help us understand that God is the strong one. He is the powerful one. The second name I want to introduce you to maybe or maybe remind you of this morning if you see it before is the name El but with another word El Olam which means the everlasting God. Now we get the idea that the everlasting simply talks about the timelessness of God and, and that would be true but it wouldn't be enough. Actually El Olam emphasizes God's unchangeableness. Is that a word? I need English teachers to help me. I don't know if unchangeableness is a word. Lynn am I okay with that? Um, well, you would tell me that anyway because you're nice. And I'm going to give you another one that may or may not be a word. His inexhaustibleness. <laughs> he never gets tired. The one who never changes. The one who, when he gives his word, he always keeps it. And the one who never gets tired 
of doing that which he is called to do. When, uh, when a woman named Hagar in Genesis 16 is out in the wilderness with her infant son because she's been run out of, out of the, the family in which she lives by another woman, uh, she cries out to God. And when God answers her, he answers as the one who is character is, is unchangeable, but he also is not too tired to help her. He is, he is there and he's going to use his power to save her. He is true to his name. I'm going to give you a negative example out of, out of human history, uh, and then I'll flip it a little bit. Um, and I, I'm an amateur student of the Civil War, and I've been reading recently about 1862 and all the battles that took place in that year. And the Army of Northern Virginia for the Confederate side just won victory after victory after victory. And they were always outnumbered, and they were always outgunned, and it came down to a question of leadership. And two things. One, you had somebody like General Robert E. Lee, who was an incredible, brilliant military strategist. But on the other side of the coin, uh, one, of the, one of the main generals they were facing in Virginia was a guy named General Pope. And what Robert E. Lee could count on with General Pope was he would always do the wrong thing. <laughs> he would always make the wrong decision. He'd have the, the, the right information in front of him, and they'd do absolutely the wrong thing. And Lee exploited that time and time again. He knew he could count on Pope to be a disaster as a general. And I know we have some families in this church named Pope. I hope you're not related to him. Uh, but I know you're not in the military, and that may be a really good decision on your part. <laughs> but there's something about being able to count on somebody, isn't there? There, there? I was talking to somebody the other day about a person's character. I said, you know, if I gave that person my wallet, and it had $100 in it, and they held on to it for a year, and they gave it back to me, it still have $100 in it. I just I know I could trust them. And that's El Olam, the one who does not change. He's true to his word, and he has the strength to see it through. Now, for, for the next five or six names I'm going to give you, these are all derivatives of the name Yahweh, which in, in, in the English Bible, when you see in the Old Testament the word Lord with all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the name Yahweh. We would use the word Jehovah. That's how we would translate that into the English. The word Yahweh simply comes from a verb that means to exist or to be. It stresses God as an independent and self-existent God. He is the God of revelation and he is the God of redemption. It's the covenant name for God. When, when God talks to Moses at the burning bush, and he says, I've seen my people in Israel, and I've seen, or in Egypt, my people Israel in Egypt, and I've seen their torment. And I've seen the struggle and the slavery in which they find themselves. I remember my covenant. I remember my promise. I remember that I fulfill my word. And Moses says, tell me your name. And God says, my name is Yahweh. I am that I am. I am the ever-existent one. I am the one who is. I am the one who will be. So all of the names that, that we're going to look at next in the, in the list all start with or are connected to Yahweh. So the existent God who is what? Or the existent God who does what? And that's where we'll look at some of these names. The first one is Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. You think about that. The Lord will provide. You know, a, lot of, a lot of us in this room consider ourselves providers for our families. And rightly so. We're the ones who are, who are tasked with either as the dad or the mom or whatever role we fill in our family, maybe even a grandfather or grandmother. We are the patriarch or we're the matriarch. We're the one who is responsible for the well-being of our family. We need to be the provider. It's a common term for us. 
And this one who is inexhaustible, this one who always is and always will be, is the God who provides. The word is used primarily in Genesis chapter 22 for the first time in Scripture when God has called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and to, uh, to offer his only son back up as an, as, as an offering to God. And, and Abraham is literally ready to, with the knife in his hand, and Isaac's tied to the altar, uh, and he's ready to offer his son as a sacrifice. And God stops him and says, Abraham, I'm the one who provides. Now I know that you trust me. And now I know that you believe who I am. And he, it says Abraham looks up and there's a ram in the thicket. And he says, this is the place where God provided. And that's the name. And it actually ends up being maybe not exactly right where Calvary ended up being one day, but it's within a hill or two of present-day Jerusalem and where God provided the one who would hang on the cross and ultimately be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God is our provider. He is Yahweh Yireh. He's also Yahweh Sabbat, which means the Lord of hosts. Now, I was looking for a, a giant army marching. I couldn't find a giant army. So I came over the guys you wouldn't want to mess with on the battlefield, which are the Marines. And, uh, and, I, and I'm not saying by that that God is, is pro-America. Don't, don't, this is not going to turn into a political uh, sermon. Don't, don't panic. I, and don't assume that either. If you think that God is just for America, you may want to re-examine your theology. But um, this is the idea of he is the, the military leader. He is, the, he is the, the Lord of hosts with the emphasis on, on the host, uh, with the emphasis on the, the fighting man, the fighting figure who comes to defeat the enemy. When David is standing in front of Goliath, this little guy David, this little teenager, maybe 15, 16 years old, scrawny little kid, and he's standing in front of a seasoned warrior who's over eight feet tall who's armed with all of his armor and his armor bearer. And, you know, the, the Bible gives dimensions as javelins like 10 feet long and it weighs like 30 pounds. I mean, this guy's going to crush David like a fly, right? And David's out there taunting him. He's out there picking a fight with him. You read it in the pages of Scripture, and it sounds like David's just, you know, making this great theological comment. You come against us with a sword and a spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the leader of the army. And, and you read it in the pages of Scripture, and it sounds like he's, you know, just kind of, saying the truth, he's actually, he's actually mocking Goliath. He's, he's, here's what he's saying. Is, is that all you got? Really? That's the best you have? You think you're going to defeat God, little puny you all by yourself? And Goliath's like, what do you have? He's like, well, I got a slingshot. But, you know, I don't, that's all I need because you're coming against the God of all the hosts of heaven. And when we think about the, the struggles of our lives and we think about the challenges of our lives and we think about the the desire for safety, the desire to feel secure. Our security comes in the name of the Lord, right? In Yahweh Sabbat, the one who will provide for his people through his strength. He is the leader of the army. I, I was reading again about the Marines a little bit this week, and Chesty Puller, who's the most decorated Marine in, in history, and, he, and he, uh, he served as a general. He worked up from a private to a general, and in the Korean War, he uh, was part of the, the uh, invasion near Pusan, and as they were pushing inland, they went further and further north, and uh, he, had, he had sent a couple dispatches back saying, we haven't been able to find the enemy, we haven't been able to find the enemy, we're looking for the enemy, we're looking for the enemy. The next day, the dispatch came back, uh, we found the enemy, we are surrounded, it makes things simpler. <laughs> That's the guy you want to follow. That's the guy you go, well, you know, wherever he's leading, I, I'll go with him. I trust him. 
There, there's a guy who understands he's got an army at his back. And if he has an army, he, he's going to win. And here is the God who is Yahweh Sabbath, the one who is the Lord of hosts, who not only will not change, who not only will not get tired, but he also has the power to care for his people. He is also Yahweh Makadashim, which means the Lord is your sanctifier. The idea here is that it is the Lord who, who is the one who sets you apart for his purposes. It's the Lord who transforms our lives. It's the Lord who makes something different out of what is, is there to begin with. In uh, Exodus chapter 31, God is giving commands to Moses and instructions to Moses. And he's talking to him about the Sabbath day, Sabbath. And he's talking to him about, we think about that like Sunday, a day of rest. But it actually means a day to be set apart for a different use. That use being rest and worship. But the word itself actually means set apart or sanctified. And when God's speaking to Moses, he says, don't forget to have this day because I am the one who sanctifies you. I'm the one who who changes your heart. I'm the one who transforms you from the inside out. If you want a New Testament equivalent of this, look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Why? Because you're being transformed by God. You're the object of God's transforming work. And that's what's behind this name, that God has a plan. He has an intention, and he's going to carry out that plan. And that plan is for your good, and that plan is for my good. It's to make us more like his son, the Lord Jesus. But God is not kind of looking at the circumstances going, gee, how am I going to figure this out? God has a plan from start to finish. My wife loves to pull practical jokes. I've mentioned this before. And if if you're a good friend of my wife and she spends a lot of time with you, please, please, please be on your toes. Don't, Don't let it be said that I never warned you because you may one day be the brunt of one of her jokes. She pulled a joke on her boss at Kirkwood High School about two months ago that lasted for three days and involved about 15 different staff members, all of who went along. And, and when it finally came out, the joke finally came out, this teacher, just this principal just sat there and shook his head. And in fact, later in the lunchroom, he was talking to the main principal at the high school. He's like, I cannot believe she did that to me. And the main principal looked at him and goes, well, I'm not afraid of Cindy Ricks. And, he go, and the, this guy who was the brunt of the joke looked back and said, you should really be afraid of Cindy Ricks. <laughs> when she works her evil genius, it can be a little scary. When God works his glorious genius, when God's plan comes to fulfillment in your life and in my life, all of a sudden there, there are marriages that are broken, that are redeemed. All of a sudden there's a attitude change that that I don't have to hold on to everything I have protected but I can freely give it away there's an attitude that says how can I be used to serve other people how can I share the gospel with others how can my life reflect this glory of God and that's because the Lord is your sanctifier he is the one who brings about the change in our lives but he's also Yahweh Rofi the one who heals the God who brings about healing and it's interesting to me that the, when this, this name first appears in Exodus chapter 15, the people of Israel are in the desert and they have no water and they come to a water source, but it's bitter. It's brackish. It, 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 can't, uh, it can't be consumed. It's not going to quench their thirst. If they drink it, they'll die. And it says that God actually heals the water. And the word there is Yahweh Rophe. The Lord, the Lord makes that which is bitter, he makes it sweet. And you think about moments of pain in your life. And you think about times when you, when you, you just, you know, you don't want to drink what's in front of you. 
You don't want to go through that experience. It's bitter, and it's hurtful, and it's painful. And yet, through that experience, God is bringing his healing about in your heart and in your life, perhaps in a relationship with another person. I've said this many times at Green Tree. The first five years of our marriage were a disaster, and it wasn't because of Cindy. <laughs> she was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong guy. I was, I was a complete knucklehead. I had no idea what it meant to be married. And if you asked her five years into her marriage to describe her marriage, bitter would be a word that she would use. If you asked her to describe her marriage today, she would say sweet. And I would echo that. And it's not because I've learned the five rules of being married. <laughs> it's not because I've read a book and, and somebody said, now go to this conference, this will teach you how to, how to change your behavior. It's because God healed my heart towards her. And God allowed me to understand the, the beauty of loving someone in a manner that, that could maybe barely touch the outer edges of how Jesus loves his church with an unconditional love. And God is the one who brings healing in our lives, even in the, even in the midst of suffering. Those are, the, those are the Yahweh names of God that I'm going to share with you this morning. And again, there are dozens of other ones that you can look at. But I have just a, a, a three more that I want to end on. And they're, they're a little bit different in their nature. The first one is El Roy, which means the God of seeing. Now we're back to that El, the ever-existent one, but he's the God who sees. And I want to bring you back to the experience with, with uh, Hagar in the desert with her little baby. And she calls God the God who sees. She says, my name for you now. I'm going to give you a name now, God. And my name for you is the God who sees because you saw me and my child, you saw us wasting away here in the desert with no one to care for us, and you saw us, and you took action, and you brought healing. You were the one who opens your eyes to us, and you're the one who opens our eyes to see your truth. I tell friends often, if you want to grow in Christ, if you want to mature in your faith, pray that God would show you your sin. Now, that might sound odd to you. Uh, you might say, you know what, I, I kind of know enough of my sin. I'd actually like to see some of the, some of the good things. But, but trust me when I tell you that's a good thing to pray because the more you see your sin, the more you need a Savior. The less you see your sin, the less you need a Savior. We have a big cross on the stage, and you can't really necessarily say, well, I'll stand next to it. And you can see I'm just under six feet one, so I don't know. That's probably about nine feet tall. We don't have a small cross on the stage. It's because there isn't a person in this room that is going to be saved by a small cross starting with the guy who stands closest to it every Sunday. If the cross is not enormous, we're in big trouble because our sin is that enormous. And so to pray that God would show us our sin drives us to our need for a Savior, which brings us to the one who gives us the sight, who allows us to see him, the one who opens our eyes. The eighth name for God that I want to share with you this morning is actually the name Yeshua, which means Savior. It's actually the Greek equivalent. Anybody know the Greek equivalent to Yeshua? Jesus. It's the name that Mary is instructed to give her son. It's the name that Joseph is instructed to give this child. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Isaiah, in chapter 43, God is talking to the nation of Israel. The whole context of Isaiah 43 is about God as Savior. God is the one who is Yeshua. He is strong to come and to save. And the ninth name I want to mention briefly this morning is the name G-A-O-L. It's hard to say. It's got about four different ways you can wrap it. In the English, it's G-A-O-L, which looks like goal with the words inflicted. So I'm not doing a good job of the pronunciation. But the idea 
of the one who is the goel is the one who is the redeemer. This is actually a financial transaction. If someone in your family in ancient Israel uh, blew all their money and made bad investments and, and had to work it off, they would actually be sold into slavery. And the goel would be the one who could come and buy them back out of slavery. They would purchase their salvation, so to speak. This word is used over and over and over again in the Old Testament book of Ruth. As Boaz comes as the kinsman redeemer, the one who's going to buy Ruth and Naomi out of this problem they have, out of this, they're, they're uh, completely impoverished. And they're alone. Naomi's husband has died. Ruth is her daughter-in-law. They are, they're exposed to all of the predators that, that, pre, that prey upon weak people. And yet there is one who can step in and with a singular focus of cost to himself, purchase their salvation, can redeem them, can, can bring them into his protective care. And that's what Boaz does in the book of Ruth. At great cost to himself, he had, he had to spend his money to make this happen. He had to sacrifice, and that is God the Redeemer, is it not? We talk about Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. We talk about him as the one who purchases our redemption. We talk about him as the one who exercises a costly love with a singular focus of our salvation. So friends, when you come to Micah chapter 5, and you read that this shepherd is going to stand in the strength of the Lord, that tends to be the thing that gets you excited, going, good, because God's, God's strong, and that's important. But what's even probably more profound is that next simple phrase, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. I haven't scratched the surface. We're at the tip of the iceberg. We're not just at the iceberg that's above the water. We're at the tip of the iceberg that's above the water when it comes to the names of God. But hopefully this morning we see that the power and the majesty of the name of God will bring peace to our lives if we let it. If we bow the knee to this one who cares so deeply that he would send his son, not so we could sing Christmas carols about a little baby born in Bethlehem, but so that the deepest and darkest sins of our lives could be forgiven through his sacrifice on the cross. We understand that that name is our peace. It changes everything. I said at the beginning, I want to say again at the, at the application here, as we begin to wind down, there is no peace between mankind if there's not first peace with God. If my heart does not come into right relationship with God through Christ Jesus, my attitude towards you will always be less than it can be. And sometimes that leads to un unspeakable tragedy. I I've sat around like a lot of you and talked with my friends over the last day or so. This is not a conversation about gun control. Quite frankly, I don't care what you think about gun control. It's got nothing to do with it. This is not about better security in schools. This is not about those of us who are adults thinking that we need to get more serious about finding ways to protect our children. The bottom line, friends, is this is about peace coming through the name of Jesus. This is a spiritual issue in our culture. It's a spiritual issue in your heart, and it's a spiritual issue in my heart. We have no right to judge or condemn anyone else, no matter, no matter how heinous their crime, because the same hatred can live and breed in my heart as well. I may never do anything outwardly that would ever even come a million miles close to what happened. It doesn't mean that there isn't hatred in my heart. The only way that we relate to one another in a manner that gives life and gives hope 
is when my heart and your heart are changed through the powerful name of God. And when I begin to see these names and I begin to rejoice in them and I begin to worship him for who he is, and I have an assurance in this present turmoil, and I also have a hope for, for, for a peace that's going to be everlasting, and I begin to see it comes through what he has done, not through my effort, not through my energy, it's actually in spite of me, then I begin to give him praise. I begin to give him his due worship. And I bow my knee. I bow my heart. I say, Jesus, you are Lord. All those names, they belong to you. And my right response is to bow before you and worship. How can I then get off my knees and turn around and hurt you? They just don't go together. This morning, our hope is in the name of peace. And as disciples of Jesus, if you call Jesus, your Lord, this morning. I call Jesus my Lord this morning. We're also called to be ambassadors for that name. To share with the world that's broken and hurting and confused and in turmoil. That there is a name of peace. Will you pray with me?